Hi guys, welcome to the first video Yachad podcast episode. Um, today, in Yehuda couldn't make it, so we have our second from from birth guest, Naim Shamash, and we have Rabbi Maksumov or Maximov. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, nice to have everybody here. Thanks uh, for Rabbi, you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Give us some of your background. Uh, you know? Sure, yes. Yeah. So as my last name gives it away, my last name is Maximov, or Maksumov. That's uh, how most people pronounce it. I'm from, a, obviously, a Bukharian household. come from Samarkand. I was born there. Came here when I was five years old. Went to public school. Eventually, I started becoming more religious, which is a whole story on its own. Um, you know, my sister started becoming religious first, and then she encouraged me. And I followed, followed in her footsteps, and uh, one thing led to another, and... Eventually, I ended up in yeshiva and started learning, and I was very passionate about the Torah that I'm learning and started giving it over. And I realized I have a talent. And if you know me when I was younger, I was like a very shy-natured kid. Like you would not see me standing in, on a stage talking to people. But at some point, I realized that I become a whole different person when I start talking and giving over, and I would have to fight my nature, which is more timid, more shy, more you know, quiet, and get out the information, get out the Torah that I am so excited about, the Torah that I'm so passionate about. And, uh, one, you know, Baruch Hashem, now I'm here with you guys using my talent. Baruch <laughs> Hashem. What do you think was that first major push for you to really become religious and, uh, you know, start that Baal path for yourself? Uh, a lot of things, it was not just one thing I have to say. It's not like, you know, there was this one time that something inspired me, but I guess Hashem guides people and um, Hashem guided me towards the right path and I ended up... Uh, you know, going to yeshiva where I got close to the rebbeim, um, and you know the the Torah that I started learning and picking, you know, l- listening to different shiurim that really inspired me. I started off with Rabbi Wallerstein, mm-hmm. Rabbi Mansur. Later on, I started listening to him a lot, and uh, I, was, I just enjoyed it so much. Um, and then, you know, that's really what got me excited. It's really the shiurim that got me excited, and now that's really what I'm giving over as well. Do you think there was something in particular that decided and that helped you decide instead of, okay, uh, let me just be Lachuva, religious on my own, you know, keeping to myself, to I'm going to dedicate my life, my almost existence, to teaching Torah to the people around me and to as many people as I can teach to? Well, what caused me to want to take the Torah that I have and give it out? What made you want to go from just Lachuva to Lachuva and Rabbi? I guess it was the feeling that I got about the Torah that I'm so excited about learning that I said, this Torah has to be spread. It has to be, you know, publicized. And I felt so excited about the things I'm listening to that I had a need to go and give it over. Um, And as a result, that's what really got me to get up. And any given opportunity that I was proposed with, whether it be in a shul, whether I was by a Shabbaton sitting around the table, whether I'd be just home with my family, I just felt like I have to share this with people. And then once I opened up my mouth, all of a sudden I transformed into this whole different person. And the excitement and the passion all comes out and, you know, the way I articulate the words. And somehow, you know, I realized this is something that Hashem has given me a talent for and I have to use it. And it started when I was already 17, 18 years old. And I would go around and, like, you know, just share the Torahs. And, and then it led to, you know, bigger things. And Baruch Hashem, um, Hashem really guided me through it all. And I really... I'm grateful for this talent that, you know, Hashem has blessed me with. It's really an incredible privilege to be able to spread Hashem's Torah. 
And um, I, the, the results, I guess, also, that come back, you know, people come to me and say, Rabbi, your information is, like, mind-blowing, it's life-changing, it's something that I really, and I guess my feelings are about, about it is as in sync with what other people feel about this information, and, and I felt like I had to do my ishtaluk, my due diligence, to go out and try to spread more of this type of Torah. It's actually really impressive how you try to get people back on the derech. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that are currently off the derech. Yeah. So what I asked them, like, what would you want to do to like try to pull back to getting them on, uh, on the derech? So I started learning with them uh, with Rabbi Vajra. Mm. Like the whole, we're doing like small missionaries, small steps, you know, doing little by little. I feel like if I jump in like really quickly, just going to drive them off. So I just want to do like little or pasuk here, pasuk there, whenever he's available. Yeah, that's the best way to go about it. The Torah is really, we call Torah Tavlin. It's the cure to everything. You know, you learn with somebody, they're going to, their soul is craving for these things. You know, the Torah belongs to them just as much as it belongs to us. And unfortunately, a lot of the world doesn't even realize that. And our job is to give them a taste of the Torah. The truth is, in the end of the day, what is a rabbi? What is our job as religious Jews? We are salesmen. <laughs> rabbi is a salesman, and I'm trying to really convince people to take their own product. This is your product. The Torah was given in front of 3 million people. All of our souls were there. It's really meant for everybody, every single human being on the planet, every single Jew on the planet. It's, it's a present for us, and unfortunately, not everyone grabs the present, understands the value behind it, so we try to show them the beauty behind it. And when you sit down with somebody and you say, hey, you want to learn with me, um, when they start learning, I think that that's really what, all of a sudden they realize that their neshama has been craving this for so many years. I, I, where did this come from? I have never felt this type of thrill with anything else. There's some sort of purpose behind this. And when per- you give a person purpose and you give them a, a reason, uh, it, it's, it's a whole game changer. And all of a sudden you see that their eyes open up and they want more and they come back for more. And you basically give them a drive. Exactly, you give them a drive. Yeah, yeah give them a boost. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's better to be addicted to this stuff than to be addicted to the other stuff out there for sure. Hundred percent, I have to agree with that. Yeah. So you know, the Torah is the remedy, and the Torah speaks for itself. You know, you, Hashem uh, put the knowledge in there, and it's a, it's it's an eternal book. It's for everybody, and. You know, you, you learn with somebody, I think that's the best way to bring someone closer to Hashem. And that's the concept of Torah Mates that Ura is doing and Torah Connect and all the other programs that are out there just to sit down with someone and learn something that they will be interested in. There's this really interesting... You had mentioned Ura and their uh, program, and Ura and their Torah Mates program is actually one of the reasons why I started this podcast uh, with, uh, you know, to help inspire. But I was learning with somebody... Shout out to Yossi Cohen, if you're listening to this. Uh, over in Lakewood, actually, great guy. Mazal uh, on your engagement, by the way. And, uh, you know, it was so great learning with him. And he kept telling me, like, you have so much, like, drive and passion about it. Like, why, why do you just keep it to yourself? And, mm. you know, really, when you're learning with other people, I feel, that gives you the inspiration to be able to go and make it, you know, when somebody can light the fire within you, and really inspire you, that can inspire thousands of people, not just yourself. That's you right, know? yeah. And it, it's very beautiful thinking about that. Yeah, that's true. I, uh, I work in a Kirov school also. It's, not, it's more or less not really Kirov. It used to be more Kirov. But a lot of uh, students who come that have that, you know, a lot of questions and they come with uh, a thirst to know. And I realize just the effect that it has, you know, the questions that they have in you. 
I had the opportunity to like um, look into a lot of these questions that I, you know they're asking, and sometimes I'm like I'm not sure myself. And it's opportunity. It's not just for the person you're learning with and you're doing a favor to them, but they're really doing a favor to you because you start asking and you start finding out more and you learn more. So uh, it's two-way street. You know, you learn with somebody and they affect you, and I'm sure that you had an impact on them as well. So a beautiful idea that Rabbi Kegel actually gave us when in our first episode was a seventy-year-old. You know, huge rabbi can sit down to learn with a six-year-old. The rabbi is not saying, I'm going to go teach the kid. He says, I'm going to go learn with the kid. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you can learn from whoever. The rabbi is learning in his own way just as much as a six-year-old is learning from this big 70-year-old Talmud Chacham. And that's the beauty, I think, that you only see in Judaism. I I don't see any secular subject where, where people will look at it as, I'm learning everything about everything in life that you're doing is about learning. It's not about you know, teaching. It doesn't put you on a pedestal above someone else. You're learning from everybody around you. And uh, yeah, I find it beautiful. It's true, yeah. That's what it's all about. So uh, we have a, a pasuk, actually, that we're going to learn this week. And uh, this week's uh, pasuk is in Parsha Vayishev, um, last line. And uh, Chamberlain of the comp bearers did not remember Yosef, but he forgot him. So, it seems a lot of context. So, do you mind just filling us in a little bit about uh, what's happened in that Sure. Parsha? Let's go back. Um, give you the backdrop behind the story. Quick recap. What's going on over here is we have Yosef who was thrown into jail um, as a result of something, a crime that he did not commit. So uh, basically he worked as a servant for a fellow by the name of Potiphar and his wife claimed that he tried to, um, to violate her and uh, then the word got out that Yosef is trying to violate a minister's wife. Now we're not just talking about a regular person over here, we're talking about Potiphar. The matter says that Potiphar was the head executioner of Egypt, so you're talking about somebody you don't want to mess with. Uh, the matter says, according to some opinions, he was the head distrib- food, dis- food distributor, so he would distribute food, and people came to him and relied on him, and therefore they obviously would take sides with Potiphar in his home, as opposed to Yosef. So you have this 17-year-old kid who comes to his home and is living by Potiphar, and Potiphar finds Yosef to be very talented in many areas, and then Asia Potiphar comes along, and she finds this boy is so handsome, so beautiful, and she gets attracted to him, and she tries to seduce him. And we learn throughout the story how he keeps strong. And finally comes the mo- moment, the crescendo of it all, where she puts him to the test and he's able to withstand the challenge. And she was about, it, it was a day when everybody was out of the house. It was an Egyptian holiday when they went to worship the Nile. It was just Yosef and Zulaikha, which is her name, Zulaikha, which was uh, the name of the Potiphar's wife. They were home alone and she came to try to get him to sin. Um, and she used different tactics. She warned him she's going to kill him. She put a knife again, you know, on his, on his neck, and she said, that we're going, I'm going to take your life. You're, you make the decision. Do you want to do this, or would you rather die? And uh, in the beginning, the Yitzhahara was so strong, our rabbis teach us that he was, when it says in the Pasuk that he went to work that day, it meant that he was actually going to go and commit the sin. And then he's able to withstand the challenge. He looks at the window, and he sees his father's image within the window, and he remembers all the Torah that he's been learning with his father. As a result, he fights the temptation. He runs out of the house, and she makes a whole scene. She goes and puts some, like, you know, uh, a, a whole powder on her face to make it look like she was all white, as if he was afraid that he's going to go now and tell everybody that she tried to 
take, you know, try to take advantage of him, and, but it, which really was what happened. So she had to go and cover herself up, and she told everybody that, no, it was actually him who tried to come onto me, and he tried to uh, violate me. So when Potiphar came home, he just couldn't believe what happened. And the message goes into length, which, you know, we're not going to get into about how, what exactly caused it that they found out, what allowed Yosef to come out really innocent. They were about to kill him, but instead they found, they realized that he really is innocent, and they decided instead of killing him, they're going to throw him to jail. Rabbi has an awesome series. Uh, you should check it out on Yosef HaTzadik, two-part series. One of my favorite, on Torah Anytime, one of my favorite series is on Torah Anytime. Check it out. Thank you. So, uh, it's an incredible series, and I, I put a lot of time into finding all the Midrashim, and I'm just giving you the gist of it over here. So once Yosef ends up um, having this whole court case against him, they throw him into jail, and uh, he sits there for, he was supposed to be there for 10 years. But in the end, it turns out he was there for 12 years. Now within that process, right after he was thrown to jail, the, and something else happens within Egypt that broke out, and it started spreading like fire. The news that everyone was talking about, the Lashon Hara, that Yosef is, should deserve death, and why are we even putting him into jail? Because they found evidence that he was innocent. But and they, and at the same time, everybody wants him dead, so they didn't feel it was right for them to kill an innocent man, so instead we're going to throw him into jail and let him face his time there. But people were still not happy about it, and they would speak behind his back, and all throughout Egypt, people were just uh, talking how Yosef is not innocent, he deserves death, and all the Lashon Hara about him, which, as we know, is not true. And Hashem decided to change the talk of town. And suddenly, through Party divine intervention, not too long after, you have the butler and the baker who both work for Paro. So they come into the room of Paro's, you know, chamber, and there's his throne room, and they come to serve him. And the, comes the butler, he's, he comes to serve him the wine, and the baker comes to serve him the, the bread. Now first the baker came. He gave the bread over to Paro. Paro puts the bread in his mouth, and as he's chewing on it, he realizes there was a pebble inside, and he was almost about to chip his tooth. So he gets really upset. Now he needs to take out the taste of the pebble inside his mouth, and he asks for wine. And just as they're giving him the wine, he finds that there is a fly within the cup. And at this point, he gets so upset that he decides he's going to throw both of them into jail. Now, first of all, let's just put this into perspective. Okay, let's analyze the story. It's such a ridiculous reason to put someone in jail. Okay, there was a fly inside the cup, and there was a pebble within the food that was, he was eating. According to Rabbi Bachia, these two men that were going up against Paro, that came to Paro to serve him this food, were actually planning to kill him. Their goal was actually to kill him. That's why they put the pebble. It was on purpose. They were hoping he's going to choke on it. And when they realized plan A is not working, they moved on to plan B, where they actually poisoned the, the cup, the wine. There was poison inside of it. And Hashem saved Paro by placing the fly within the cup so that he wouldn't come to drink it. Why would Hashem want Paro alive? Because later on, Paro is going to be the one that's going to... Uh, to nominate Yosef as the next viceroy of Egypt. So we need Paro alive. And these two men end up in, in prison. Now, it's, I think it's that you chose this pasuk to learn with me. And I'll tell you why. I was thinking when you told me, you know, let's learn this pasuk. Like what Shaykh is doing thing. We're, learn, we're in the, almost Purim is coming up. And we're talking about a pasuk that we learned about how many months ago. <laughs> you know, the story of Yosef. Let, you know, it's, uh, people want to hear about Purim. And... I came across something so interesting from the Ben Yoda, the Sefer written by the Ben Ishchai. Okay. I was learning Purim, and uh, he just comes across, and he calls this Pasuk, and he connects Purim to this Pasuk, which is incredible because Purim is coming up, 
and there's nothing better to do than to take this Pasuk and see how in the world it relates to Purim. What in the world does Purim have to do with this Pasuk? What is the cupbearer who lived thousands of years before Haman, you know, have to do with uh, Haman? The last Paro actually was a thousand to nine hundred years from Haman. So the stories are like so far apart from each other. So what is uh, Achashverosh and the story of Purim have to do with the cupbearer? The answer is like this. So it comes the Ben Shine explains. He says, the cupbearer and the, the baker wanted to kill Paro. And their goal was to get rid of him. In the end, as a result, they get thrown into jail. Because they end up being thrown into jail, they meet Yosef. Yosef interprets their dream. The cupbearer finds out that according to the interpretation, he's going to come out alive. The baker, however, is going to die. He's going to be executed. He comes out, and then eventually, Paro needs someone to interpret a dream that he had, he personally had. And he turns to the cupbearer and says, do you have anyone that can interpret the dream? The cupbearer says, oh, I remember there was a guy in jail. His name was Yosef. So let's take Yosef out of jail. So this whole story with the cupbearer and the baker actually is the, the road to getting Yosef to get the position of the viceroy. This was like Hashem's plan. Through them, is the vehicle of getting Yosef, the position that he's supposed to meant to get, is the cupbearer and the baker. So let's just keep that in mind and move on to the story of Purim now. Guys, you make the connection. Go ahead. Um, when the two soldiers were trying to poison Achashverosh, and one of them translated what they were saying, because he spoke, uh, I think, 71 languages. Yes. So he translated that, and he told, I think, Esther, yes. to tell Achashverosh that they are trying to poison Exactly. Him. So you have Bixon and Seresh, okay, these two guys who work for the king, for Achashverosh, and they decide to kill Achashverosh. Why? Because they didn't like the job that they were given. They had to stand uh, guarding the palace day and night, and they were sleep-deprived. So they felt like Achashverosh was taking advantage of them. And for something so silly, they decided to kill Achashverosh. We already see the first parallel. That just like Paro wants to get rid of the butler and the baker for such, something so silly, and he was really prepared to kill them, here we have the uh, two guards, Bixon and Seresh, who want to kill Achashverosh for something so silly because he made him stand all day. And then, as a result of this, Mordechai ends up rising to power because he finds out, as you said, he understood their language. He understood Tarshish, which was the language they were speaking. He informs Esther... Achashverosh finds out, and Achashverosh decides he wants to reward Mordechai. And he doesn't end up rewarding Mordechai right away. He ends up rewarding him much later, much later on in the story. And as a result, Mordechai brings our salvation. Of course, the story, Benachapuchu uh, turns around on Haman. Now, who brought Mordechai to power? What allowed Mordechai to get fine favor in the king's eyes? Hashkachat, uh, right. Hashkachat, divine intervention. Who were the two men that brought Yosef to this position? Bikton and Teresh, two servants of the king. And we have the same parallel over here with the story of Yosef, where two servants of the king is what brought Yosef's uh, right, uh, power. If, if it wasn't for these men, then how would power ever find out that Yosef is uh, capable of interpreting dreams? So we say that these two stories are very much connected. And I think the lesson that maybe we could take from this, well, I think that uh, in the end, God's will will prevail. And Hashem has so many messages in so many ways of getting His way that a story like this where it seems so hopeless for Yosef, like how would you, what would you think that? How would Yosef ever end up uh, riding to power, but we see in the end Hashem came through for him, and then Hashem came through for Mordechai, and they say they bring, Hashem brings the cure before the disease. And before he sets up Haman, he already prepared that Mordechai should eventually find, you know, Hashem, uh, you know, Ahasuerus would want to reward Mordechai for what he did, and as a result, in the end, he's going to take Mordechai's side, and he's going to hang Haman. So there is a connection between Purim, which I had to just get out there. Uh, which I know I was very excited about. And also, the fact that he didn't... Uh, t- Yosef wasn't taken out of jail right away. If he was taken out of jail right away, then Paro wouldn't have a dream, and then he would be useless. And then in the end, he would just... Nothing would have come out of it. But we had to wait till the end of the story 
to realize why he had to stay in jail for another two years. And the same here, the story with uh, Mordechai, that right away he didn't get rewarded. Hashverosh didn't want to reward him right away, but later on in the story. But I think there is a very important lesson that we could take from this Pasuk that is very applicable to our lives, and there's a very fundamental lesson. And that is that Yosef, when he, he met these two men, the butler and the baker, he interpreted their dreams. Now, and eventually the baker ends up dying, according to the interpretation, the butler comes out. The butler comes out, and as the butler is leaving jail, his imprisonment, Yosef approaches him and he says, can you please not forget about me? You know, I did you a favor, I interpreted your dream, I gave you peace of mind for the next you know, a few days that you ended up here in jail, and so you were taken out, you were worried what's going to be with you. You didn't understand what your dream meant. Your dream meant, you know, you didn't know what it meant, and you felt worried about it, so I came to relieve you from that worry. So what should the, the butler have done? He should have felt a certain amount of gratitude towards Yosef, and Yosef requested that when you leave, go tell Paro about me. Don't so, forget about me. Don't forget about me. He should have went and told Paro, you know, there's a man in jail, you know, he did me a favor, maybe you could... Have mercy on him, and you should take him out of, out of his imprisonment as well. However, and there's two different opinions in Grush. According to some opinions, the, the butler had no gratitude. He had no gratitude, the cupbearer had no gratitude. Mm-hmm. And instead of coming out feeling a certain sense of gratitude towards, towards Joseph, he comes out feeling like, what do I need this Jew for? And he felt like he's a lowly slave, and he doesn't owe him anything, and he just forgot about it. He simply deleted Joseph out of his mind. Until the right time came where Hashem basically pressured him to tell Paro about Yosef. But Paro already didn't know who to turn to him. He turned to the cupbearer himself and he said, you tell me the interpretation of the dream. He says, I don't know. And the only person that came to his mind, Hashem put in his mind, was Yosef. So at the right time, two years later, when it was time for Yosef to come out, then Hashem makes sure he'll come out through the cupbearer. So really, the cupbearer was not a good guy. Others say that, no, he was a good guy. He wanted to remind, he wanted to, to tell Paro that, Yosef is in jail. He was hoping that he could get him out of jail. The problem was he even put, the matter says he even put a red string around his finger so he doesn't forget. And he did all types of things like this so that when he leaves jail, he'll remember what Yosef did for him by interpreting the dream. And as a result, he's going to go ahead and tell Paro about Yosef. But Malan Gabriel came down and deleted this memory from him. And he was so overwhelmed with all the tasks that were thrown on him. He was in jail all this time. He was taking care of his jobs. So he has to come down and take upon himself all these responsibilities that he was so overwhelmed that he forgot about Yosef. Now, why would Hashem cause it that Yosef should end up in jail for two extra years? So the rabbi teaches, well, it was because of a lack of faith that he had in Hashem. Why did you come to the butler and the baker, or oh, sorry, the, the butler in this case, why did you come and tell the butler that I want uh, you to remember me and go tell Paro to take me out of my prison? You should have trusted in Hashem. And because of a lack of faith, Hashem was about to take him out 10 years. He was supposed to only be there in jail for 10 years. He ends up there for 12 years. So the question is, what's with the two extra years? It's a question. You know, we're talking about that. And, you know, in today's world, we're told, trust in Hashem, you know, you have to do your best also, right? And, you know, we think it's it's a normal thing to do. You know, you're going to trust in your, uh, you're going to trust in Hashem, but at the same time, you're going to say, like, maybe I should just try and, like, ask, you know, do my best so Hashem can do the rest, you know? I'll do my best and Hashem will do the rest. You know, it rhymes, so it has to be true, right? <laughs> but uh, if he just did his best, he was trying to do it. Why is it that he was punished for just trying to do his best, I guess we can say? Okay, there's a few answers to this question. You guys talk so much lower than me. I talk so fast because I have so much information that I, I always like get carried away. And 
Yeah. When I talk, people have to like slow me down. When you guys talk, they have to probably speed you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. I, I listen to point seven five sometimes. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I have myself and I have patience. I listen to all my lectures two times faster. You know, <laughs> three times faster depending on the speaker. Uh, there's one speaker that I do not fast forward. That's Rabbi Ethan Finder. You ever heard him speak? He's like yeah. he's the speed of light. So, um, but other than that, everyone else, you know, they you know, I speak about. So, your question is though, what did he do wrong? Yosef put his talut. He put his effort. He went and told them to remember him. Um, I don't see anything wrong with what he did. Hashem, come on, give the guy a break. He was there for ten years. You're gonna keep them in jail for another two years because something like so innocent like he just wanted them to remember after all the end of the day we have to put our shalut did he really have to just trust in hashem is what 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 is the message to us that we should just trust in hashem and not put any shalut so the answer to this is first of all it's interesting how this parashiot always you know fall out during hanukkah time and there was an interesting connection between hanukkah and the story as well and that will answer our question you know when you Play the dreidel, spin the dreidel on Hanukkah. You put your effort by spinning the dreidel, but do you know where the dreidel is going to land? You guys know, you know it's going to be a hay or a gimel. You would like to have a gimel because you want to win. But sometimes you don't get the gimel, sometimes you lose, sometimes you get the nun, which you get nothing, or sometimes you get shin where you have to give, or sometimes, you know, hay where you get half, where you get something. So the dreidel reminds us that you put your effort, you spin, but it's not up to you which letter is going to surface. And the end, Hashem will decide what you will get. So the dreidel reminds us what Emunah is. Emunah is, you trust that in the end of the day, God's going to take care of you. You just have to spin the dreidel. So when it comes to the dreidel, we do our job by spinning the dreidel, and the end, Hashem will decide what you're going to get. And that's true in life as well. We just have to put in our shalut. The problem with Yosef, however, is that he felt that he's going to control his situation. That he relied on the butler to the point that he really felt that it's really going to be the butler that's going to take me out of jail. And it's only through my ishtalut that I'm going to come out of it. Come out of the suffering, come out of this misery, come out of my imprisonment. But what he should have realized is, it's not my ishtalut that's going to take me out of this. It's rather Hashem that's going to take me out of this. I just spin the dreidel, but Hashem will decide my results. That's how Hashem wants us to approach Imunah. Now that my effort is going to lead me to my success, but rather Hashem is going to take me there, but I have to, in the end of the day, put my due diligence, put my effort... And as a result, Hashem will see that I desire this, I want this, and if He sees it's best for me, Hashem will provide it for me. That's where Yosef would, I would say, really went wrong. So our rabbis teach us that, you know, just like the dreidel reminds us this concept, Yosef also reminds us that don't forget at the end of the day that if Hashem wants it, it's going to happen. And when he, what he did was wrong. By asking, them, asking the butler to remember him, there was nothing wrong with that. The cupbearer going to Paro, reminding Paro about Yosef, there's nothing wrong with that. He did his ishtadlut. The problem is that when he did his ishtadlut, he felt that it is through my ishtadlut I'm going to um, take myself out of here. So it was his mindset that was the issue. It was really the mindset. Yes. What else could take away from Yosef saying like, hey, Hashem's always in control. Whatever we do, we can do our exactly. ishtadlut, but Hashem is motivating us, pushing exactly. us to do our best. Yes. And you know you can't put your you can't put your trust in man alone. Here he had trust in Hashem also, but in the end of the day we can't rely on man at all. In fact, I saw in one of the Musar Sifarim, I think it was Orchut Sadikim, he gives a mashal of a line of blind people, and they're all walking like a train. You know they're holding onto each other's shoulders. So the person was blind on this line. One of the people, every single person really thinks that the person in front of him is really guiding him, 
but he doesn't realize the guy in front of him is just as blind as him, and he has no power. Who's the one who's guiding them? There's one guy in the front who could see, and he's the one who's guiding them, all of them, and that's Hashem. Hashem sees everything from a bigger perspective, from a bigger angle, and he sees the world from abroad. And therefore he knows, and he guides and micromanages every single step along our life, and he's the one who supervises every, over everything. So in the end of it all, we have to put our full trust in Hashem and not say, well, the guy who I'm holding on to, he's going to be the one that's going to take me out of here. He's the one that's going to guide me. The issue with Yosef is that he relied too much on the cupbearer. He put his hand and his trust on him that he felt that he's going to go and speak up for me. But in reality, we have to realize the cupbearer has no power. It's not, it's not uh, Hashem and the cupbearer. It's just Hashem. You know, I heard a story from Rabbi Mansur. He said he once gave a lecture in front of a lot of people and he spoke about the Holocaust. And when he came off the stage, as he was walking down the steps, a Holocaust survivor approached him and he said, Rabbi, you have no idea how much this lecture meant to me. And he said, you know, I'm a Holocaust survivor. And I went through everything. He said, I went through the, 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 you know, the transportations and the whole, uh, the car carts. And uh, the, he, he witnessed it all. His family, he lost them all. He spoke about how he, he saw, witnessed the gas chambers and the crematoriums. And he says, Rabbi, you have no, no idea. Like, I went through it all. And they were treated by people who are subhuman. So the rabbi looked at him. Rabbi Mansur looked at him and he said, Can I ask you something? What helps you keep your emuna? You know, I see you're standing here with a kippah, your tzitzit. What allowed you to keep your emuna? He says something so incredible. He said, You know what kept my emuna? He opens up his sleeve and shows him the numbers. He says, Look at my numbers. The first number was 26. That's, he says, whenever I looked at number 26, is Yudke Vavke, at Hashem's name. The Marek Valley of Yudke Vavke is 26. The rest of the numbers was equivalent to the number 13. You add them up, you get 13, which is the number for the word Echad. So he said, whenever I looked at it, I didn't just see a bunch of numbers. I saw Yudke Vavke, Hashem, 26, Echad is one. There's only one Hashem. It's not the Nazis and God. It's, it's not the Gestapo and God. It's not the concentration camp or the deportations and God. It's just God. God is guiding it all. And because I understood this is all from Hashem, all along, I knew it's not, uh, it's, it's, I can't put my reliance on anybody. At the end of the day, Hashem will see to it. I was brought here by God, and if God wills it, I'll be taken out of here by God. And so that was the type of munah that this man had. And with that type of munah, he was able to leave you know, his, uh, his suffering. But you know, that teaches is a very important lesson as well, that it's only Hashem. And if you have that approach in life, it gives you a life of serenity, of peace of mind. A person who went through the most greatest suffering on the planet was able to come out with such emuna, and that's really what came out of what allowed him to come out of there, you know, sane, and was able to uh, come out of there with uh, with this perspective that you know Hashem was uh, helping him, and as a result, he you know he was able to make it out. But at the end of the day, we have to realize it's not Hashem and it's just Hashem. Do you guys have any more questions? No, I just got really big chills all over my eyes. <laughs> I saw it from your eyes. I'll tell you something really cool. You know, in the Hebrew alphabet, there's a lot of mysticism, a lot of depth. Like in the English, in the English you know, alphabet, I can't explain to you why the A is next to the B or the B is next to the C or why it's configured the way it is or why it looks the way it does. But in the Hebrew alphabet, there's much depth and much wisdom, much reason why this letter has to be found next to this letter, why it looks the way it does, why it's configured the way it is. Let's take, for example, the letter Gimel. The Gimel, if you pay attention to the, just the formation of the Gimel, the way it looks, it looks like it's just a little guy who's stretching out his hand and he's giving to somebody. He has his two legs stationed firmly to the ground and he's approaching someone to give. Now, in order to be a giver, you need a receiver. You need someone to give to. What's the letter after the gimel? The Dalit. What is the Dal doing? The Dalit is stretching out his arm because he's asking for help. 
the Gimel understands that Dalit needs help, so he's approaching him from the back. Now, pay attention how the Gimel is approaching him out of sensitivity, out of a certain sense of acknowledgement, recognition, that he doesn't want to embarrass him, so he approaches him from the back when he starts giving to him. In fact, the Gemara says, the word Gimel comes from the word Gimelut Chasadim. Gimelut Chasadim, which means to perform acts of kindness. Gimel means to give. Dal comes from what Dalit comes from Dal, which means poor. He's poor, and that's why he's stretching out his arm. So the Gimel is giving to the Dalit, he's approaching him in a way that he shouldn't embarrass him out of sensitivity. But what's incredible about this is, what's the letter after the Dalit? The hey. So the Dalit has his back towards the Gimel. You would assume, really, it's the Dalit who should be running after the Gimel, but here it's really the Gimel that's running after the Dalit. Because the Gimel is teaching us when you give to someone, you have to do it in a way that it's not going to embarrass them and it's not going to hurt their feelings. So you do it inconspicuously, incognito, in a way that it's not going to realize whose benefactor is. So he approaches them in the back. But the, dal- the Dalit doesn't even face towards the Gimel because the Dalit realizes at the end of the day, it is not the Gimel who's benefiting him. Who's the next letter after the Dalit? Hey, which stands for Hashem. At the end of the day, he realizes that this, gim- this Gimel is providing for me. I'm just, he's just like that man in the line that we were sp- speaking about earlier who's blind just as, blind as I am. In the end, he's just as hopeless as I am. But who's giving him to give to me? In the end, it's really Hashem. So in the end, we have to realize who's really helping us. It's really Hashem. So should we be showing gratitude both to the Gimel and to Hashem? Absolutely. I mean, Hashem gave him the wherewithal to help you. So... Obviously, he chose from his own free will to do the right thing and to give to you. Mm-hmm. But in the end of the day, you have to realize, so Hashem, imagine you go to the bank and you ask them for your money. And then you start thinking, thank you so much for giving me my money. You know, you, you cashed out some, you know, some $100 or whatever. Thank you so much for the $100. It's your money, really. So the same thing really is with the poor person and the rich man. That The rich man is giving. And the poor man is like, thank you, thank you. But really, it's really my money. Hashem gave it to you, so give it to me. Right? So really, in the end of the day, it's Hashem who gave it to him in the first place. And Hashem has millions of ways to get you that money. And if it's not through him... Hashem only gave it to him for this reason, and if you're not using it properly, Hashem could take it away from him, and Hashem will find another way to give it to the poor man. So that's the type of emunah that we have to have. That at the end of the day, it is Hashem who's providing for us, and it's Hashem, Hashem alone. No man, it's not the cupbearer and God. It's not the, wine, the one who's serving the wine and God. It's not this guy who's going to take me out of this imprisonment and God. It's Hashem Echad, Hashem alone. And this is what uh, this man was telling Rav Mansur, that it's Hashem Echad, that I remember it's only from Hashem. You know, it's Pesach is coming up, and in the Haggadah, when we get to Magid, which is the highlight of the Haggadah, we speak about the four sons. When we speak about the four sons, we say, Echad Chacham, Ve'echad Rasha. Now you guys tell me. Do you hear the transition? Yeah. Echad Chacham, Ve'echad Rasha. What's the difference between Echad Chacham, Ve'echad Rasha? Very good, Vav. What is the job of above? To include. And it's coming to combine. What's the difference between the Chacham and the Rasha? The Chacham... It's just Echad Chacham. What is Echad? Echad is only Hashem. Hashem is God, and there's only one God, so whenever we say the word Echad, we're referring to Hashem. Echad Chacham. Chacham lives with Hashem. There's only Hashem in his life. He's wise, and what makes him wise is that he realizes that there's no one else in this world, it's just God. But then there's the Rasha who thinks, yeah, there's a God. I won't deny him. I can't deny God after all. But it's Ve Echad. It's God and my competitor. It's God and the guy in the shul who doesn't want to give me the aliyah. It's God and the other person. You always think it's God and. It's not ve'echad. It's just echad. That's the type of mindset we have to have. It's just Hashem alone. Hashem echad. That's where emunah is. I believe everything in the end of the day is from Hashem. Whether it comes from another... It seems like it might be... Uh, it might be seem like it's people are doing, it might seem like this is the situation I'm in and it's only the situation that's influencing the, these things to happen, but 
There's no such thing as coincidence. At the end of the day, if Hashem didn't want this person to interact with you, it wouldn't have happened. It was all from Hashem, and that's the type of faith we have to hold on to. So I, I read a lot of the you know, more recent Musar books when I get the chance, and uh, one of my favorites is Living in Munah. I love that one. And in that book, they have such a beautiful example of, I guess, what you're talking about in the Rasha, where it says there was a guy, and uh, everybody, he would go daven very, very hard every day during Mincha. Everybody would see him, you know, like he was one of the, I don't know if he was a latitude or longitude prayer, but... Uh, <laughs> he listens to my lectures, don't you? <laughs> I do, I do. Uh, but definitely he, he, a lot of kavanah when he's praying, and, but he was a ruthless businessman, right? And everybody knew he was a ruthless businessman. And one day, rabbi comes after, the, after davening, he says, listen, you seem like such a, like a tzaddik in the way that you're davening, you have so much kavanah and everything. Why do you interact so, so aggressively and so ruthlessly in business? And his response was, I, I did the business. I created the business. I just don't want God to take it away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the mentality sometimes that people will have. Uh, right. You know? Right. You think that, you know, it's, it's them and Hashem. And Hashem right? It's not Hashem who's giving it to them. Right. It's the fact that they earned it themselves, but God could take it away. Yeah. Not the way that God gave them everything and God can take everything. They, they, put the, they insert themselves into it and that's what creates the idea of the rasha for them. Right, that's really what gives, shows that they have a lack of emunah. Exactly. And that brings us to Yosef, which shows us now we understand where the lack of emunah was. That it was the cupbearer and Hashem. Yeah. But in the end, it's not the echad, it's just echad. Okay? Um, you know, there was actually an interesting prank that a bunch of guys decided to do. They went to Yellowstone National Park. Now, you ever been to Yellowstone National Park? No. But you heard of the geysers that they have over there. They have these geysers that just shoot up to the sky. And it's really a phenomenon. People all over the world come to see this. And they're so impressed. Like, where does this water come from? You know, there's no pipes under the ground. It somehow accumulates and then it just bursts into the sky. And then everyone just comes to watch it. And there's certain times of the day when it just bursts. So there were these pranksters who got together, went to the Yellowstone National Park. Now, there's a tourist site where there's a bus that passes by these areas where they have the geysers. And the, there's a lady who, you know, gives them a tour. And... They come at a certain time when the geysers are about to, you know, come out. The water is about to shoot out. And these pranksters were waiting behind the bush with a fake, uh, it was like a steering wheel from a bus. And they attached it to the ground. And when the bus came with all these people to look at the geysers, he says, this is a phenomenon, this is all nature. You know, there's no pipes under the ground. These guys stuck the thing under the ground. And you hear the people behind the bush, go, 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 now, now, now. And then they start to, you know, twist, turn the, the wheel. And they're like, what's going on over there? You, you told us that this was all a you know, natural phenomenon. There's no pipes under there. With those guys over there turning the wheel, it's, uh, it must be that uh, they're the ones that are doing it. This is, we came all the way here, paid so much money to what? To see how a bunch of guys are going to spin a wheel. We could do that too. She says, no, this is just a trick. They're, they're just fooling you. She gets out of the bus. She goes and she pulls it out of the ground. She says, this is all fake. They're just pranking you. And they realize, oh, so after all, it was really, you know, <laughs> it was really, the, you know, this is really a phenomenon. It's really nature. I mean, obviously, we call it Hashem. Um, but obviously, nothing is just like, you know, uh, randomness. And there's the God behind it all. But the point here is that they saw the steering wheel, and these people are turning the steering wheel. It looks like they're doing it. But at the end of the day, in our lives, we feel like we're the ones who are turning the steering wheel. And we're causing the water to shoot out. We think that we're doing, but really, we're like that guy who's turning as fast as we can, but that steering wheel is really not connected to anything. Arishtadlut is really not connected. It's really Hashem is the one who's managing it all. It's really Hashem who will decide whether you will 
have your success, whether you will get your, to your destination, whether you will fulfill your goal and get to your objectives. So you could turn the wheel all you want, but you have to remember, I'm just doing my shtadlut. Now, this really brings us to the next point, which I think is very important to address as well. How much shtadlut must a person put into his work? Exactly. Right? How much shtadlut am I supposed to put, after all? There's no set formula for this question. There's no like one answer. You have to work eight hours a day. There's no like or seven hours a day. You have, to, you have to work five hours. You have to have a moon hour. Don't work at all. There's no set formula. It really depends on the person at the end of the day. But let's first ask ourselves, how do we know we're supposed to put Ishtadlut in the first place? Where in the Torah do we see that a person has to put Ishtadlut? Where in the Torah does it say that? Well, let's take a look. When it talks about the man, which is our sustenance that we got when we were traveling in the desert. Hashem sent us the man. And Hashem comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and He says, I want you to go and tell the people to go measure the, the man, and they're going to go to, it's going to rain down man, and they're going to go to the fields, and they're going to measure based on the amount of people they have in the household. So let's say you have around 10 people in your household, so you have to take enough man to feed 10 people. Now let's say a person goes out, and he's going to get the man. He's going to get for his family. He goes to get the man, he's measuring, but he takes too much. He was supposed to take for 10 people, like Moshe told him, based on your family size, but he takes for 20 people, double the amount. What happens to that man by the time he comes home? It shrinks. So in the end, he didn't really achieve anything. The person who takes too little, it grows, it expands. So the same works with a parnasah. You go and you put your ishtadlut. If Hashem wants you to have a certain amount of money, if you got less, Hashem will bring you more. And Hashem has many ways of bringing you more. I could just attest to this myself. You know, my own life, I saw Hashem just send me money left and right, and I didn't see where it's coming from. Or you could work too much, and then Hashem is going to give you a problem with, you know, you got into a, somebody got into a car accident or something happened and they lost Lawsuit, money here or there. Uh, Lawsuit. Who knows how many ways Hashem could take away. Tax deduction. Yeah, exactly. There's so many ways where Hashem could take away the money from us. But Rav Samson Hirsch says, at the end of the day, you could ask yourself, these people, they were smart people. Why would they work so hard to go get a certain amount of man for their family, sitting there and measuring it. Imagine I tell you, can you pour me a cup of water? Yes, how much? Uh, 3.2 ounces. Like, what? I'm not gonna, what am I measuring? What am I gonna measure it for you? So, Hashem wants us to go and measure. What does that even mean? How are we gonna measure how much our family needs? The answer is, you could think to yourself that maybe they could go out to the fields and they could collect. And why do I have to waste my time measuring when I could just take a little bit? By the time I get home, guess what? A miracle is gonna happen. And it's going to expand. So I come home, my family, I take a little piece of man, I put it on the table, guys, I bring all my kids, you want to see a miracle? And all of a sudden it starts to expand and has enough for everyone. So why are you wasting your time measuring? Why are you wasting your time measuring? It says of Samson Phil Hirsch, that this is coming to teach us the concept of Ishtadlut. And the end of the day, Hashem says, you have to measure. You figure out how many people you have in your household, how many people you have to support, and then Hashem is going to provide for you the rest. There's a certain amount of money that is destined for us in the next world. We learn it. Um, in the Gemara that tells us that everything is destined at the end of the day, except for how much Yerat Shemaim you're going to have. You know, everything is from Hashem except for how much fear of God you will have, your, your free will. But how smart a person is going to be, his intellect, how good looking is going to be, how much money he's going to have, how influential he's going to be, all these things is already Hashem decided, which means amongst these things is your money, your panasa. And in the end of the day, Hashem already decided how much money you're going to get. And how much effort am I really supposed to put? The answer really is that Hashem will decide how much money, and you go and you put in your ishtadlut. Um, now, how would you put your ishtadlut? Is another question. You know, there is a pasuk from King Solomon. He says, in the path and the derech that a person chooses to go, that's the derech that God is going to guide him through there. 
if this is the path you want to take, so then Hashem will guide you there. Now, if you want to make Pranasah by teaching Torah like I did, right, which is very, you know, good idea, guys. You should highly recommend it. You get paid to go to Shacharit. You get paid to teach guys. <laughs> it's definitely worth it. So Hashem says, listen, this is a path you chose. Great, I'm going to provide for you through this path. However, if you want to make Pranasah, you don't want to get, you know, by, and you want more of a luxurious life, so by all means, you could go and get yourself a career and all the other things, and you could, Hashem is obviously going to see your, your efforts, and He's going to provide for you that way as well. So at the end of the day, Hashem could provide either way. You just put your shtadlut into whatever direction you want to go, and Hashem will find a way to send you the money based on the direction you, you will have to go. But like I said, there's no set formula of how much you have to work. At the end of the day, it all comes down to one point. The more emunah you have, the less you have to work. The more trust you have, so the more shtadlut, your shtadlut, uh, begins where your emunah ends. How do you, how do you like that? Okay. Your efforts begin where your faith in God ends. This is how much you believe in God? So good, now go work. Sanherov had to go, uh, went up against um, a whole Jewish army. And um, it says that they went to sleep that night and uh, they, they had trust in Hashem. And the next day, all Sanherov's soldiers died. They didn't put any Ishtadlut because they had such faith. Now, the question is, do you have such faith? If you were on that level, then yeah, you could... Just go to sleep and Hashem was going to provide for you just like it provided for you know, the Jews then when Sarkharif came against them. But we don't have that type of emunah. We're not on that level. So yeah, we're going to have to go to work and we're going to have to put our shtadlut and it's the man's job to go to work. Uh, but at the end of it all, I have to remind everybody that listening to this that the word man, where does it even come from? Where does that word come from? What does it even mean, man? The word man comes from the word matana. What does matana mean? Yeah. A gift. The man, the sustenance is really in the end of the day, it's a... It's a gift. Hashem will give it to you. It's only Hashem's giving it to you. Exactly. It's an act of chesed. It's an act of chesed. So you shouldn't come down and feel like, oh, I didn't make the money today. It wasn't meant to be. Hashem didn't want me to have it. And uh, therefore, it's uh, important to keep these concepts in mind as you go through life. And you know, you put your shtadlut, but at the end of the day, you remember Hashem wants me to put the shtadlut, and Hashem already has a way decided how much I'm going to make. So if that's the case, does it make sense to set long-term goals in your eyes? Does it make sense? Okay. If this is where we've hit revenue this year, five years from now I want to hit this. Five years from then I want to hit this. You could set yourself goals, but don't forget you're not in control that if Hashem will, will it, you will succeed. Uh, you have to approach it with that type of attitude as well. Not, I will succeed if I do this and this. That was Yosef's mistake. I will succeed if I go and tell the butler to remember me. It's not, I will succeed if I do this and this. I will succeed if Hashem wants me to. I just will put my ishtadlut. And in the end, Hashem will make sure it expands if it's meant for me, or it will be less because I overdid my shtadlut and Hashem is going to give me less. So Rabbi, we went lots of different directions. <laughs> yeah. We covered so much today. Yeah. But if, if the people listening or yeah, watching or listening, um, or, both. or both, you know, um, if they can take one thing from, from what we talked about here, you know, like what do you think is the, the real, like, what would you say we can take into our individual lives to, to learn from this pasuk, to learn from Yosef at Sadiq in our own day today lives? So I think just to summarize, the lesson that we took from Yosef and from this pasuk is that you should not put your trust in man alone. And you should not, most certainly not put your trust in yourself. But rather, Hashem Echad, as we said, it's not Echad. At the end of the day, it's only Hashem. And... At the same time, we also have to put our ishtadlut. But remember, it's not our ishtadlut that's going to help us succeed. But it's really Hashem. And uh, I could put more effort, I could put less effort. But I would be sincere about my efforts. And Hashem will make sure that in the end you're going to get the amount that you deserve, the amount that Hashem has destined for you. And Hashem will see to it how much you will need in life and what's best for you. 
something I've seen personally, specifically with Emmet, though. I, I can't say with any other organization. Yeah. Uh, if I have an exam, and the day before I'm like, you know what, I'm going to leave some time when I get home to study, but instead of just like, you know, going home and studying and maybe missing a shiur with Emmet, I'm going to first go, <laughs> listen to the shiur, everything works out at the end. Right. You know? Bitachon, emunah, everything will be okay. So, I, I mean, if... You, you know, Hashem really, just to prove to you how, like, and Hashem decides your pranasah, like, you know, they had Walmart and Kmart. Who in the world knows what Kmart even is anymore? But they had the same exact name. They were selling the same exact product, but in the end, who succeeded? Walmart. Nobody knows what Kmart is anymore. But, yeah, they declared back in, exactly. So now, what allowed Walmart to succeed? It was Hashem. Hashem, they were selling the same exact product. They were doing the same exact thing. They put the same ishtadlut. But in the end of the day, Hashem decided. So in the end of the day, it really comes out to Ratzon. You know, we say, Ratzon. In the end, Hashem will see to it. People want it. Hashem put a Ratzon inside of them. They will want it. And then Hashem will make sure that you'll be successful. So you don't have to put too much effort in trying to get people. In the end of the day, you could sit back and enjoy the show. Hashem will provide it for you. It's all in a matter of your emunah. You know, they came out with the ripped jeans. You know, those ripped jeans that they have? Like, they look like they were dragged in the dirt and they sell them for like a, more expensive than the ones that are nice, neat jeans. And like... And those, yeah, those jeans are getting making more money than the regular jeans. In the end of the day, it's all ratzon. The guy who came up with this, Hashem said, you know what? I'm going to make sure people are going to want it. It's all, in the end of the day, it's all about ratzon. L'kol hai ratzon. By the way, thinking, speaking about poteach et yadecha, guess how many words there are in poteach et yadecha? Poteach et yadecha umazbir l'kol hai ratzon. Seven words. How many letters are there in poteach et yadecha umazbir l'kol hai ratzon? Count the math of letters. Check me out. After this, go count it. 24 letters. You know why there's 24 letters and seven words? Because 24-7, wow. Hashem opens up his eyes and He always provides for us. So you have to have a munai in Hashem. In the end of it all, Hashem is the one providing for you. It's not at the end of the day. Don't go hard on yourself because you didn't make the business. And you, know, you didn't get to this college or you didn't get to this job. You put your effort. Hashem saw you put your effort. But for whatever reason, Hashem will guide you because He feels like you'll be better off in this, having this position. And It all comes down to trust in Hashem and emunai. And the way you strengthen your emunai, emunai is really a muscle. It's a muscle. The more you have train yourself to see Hashem in your life, the divine intervention, the more you will increase this muscle of emunah. It's all a muscle. So you have to strengthen the emunah by looking around your life and realizing there's no coincidences. You got a parking spot. I love this example because it's so applicable, so practical. How many times you get a parking spot, like you couldn't find parking, somebody comes out, you come in. What were the chances that happen? Think about it. That guy must have dropped his wallet on the way out of the house. He's like, oh, Hashem's like, wait, 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 make sure, I'm going to make sure that no one else is going to get the spot, just you. And he's going to come out at the perfect time to get to the car, to leave, the perfect time so you could get it. That's Hashem right there. And then you focus on these moments in your life, and that will increase your emunah, and that will develop your emunah to a point where you have no doubt that, there, that this is all from Hashem. It, it always bothered me. How is it possible that there are people out there that are self-proclaimed atheists? They're so sure of themselves that there is no God. How do you know there's no God? How can you be so sure that there is no God in this world? And I think the answer is rather obvious. That imagine you're standing here on earth and you're facing the sun, which is millions upon times greater than the earth itself. And all it takes to cover up something so ginormous, something so humongous, is to raise your hand like this and all of a sudden the whole sun is gone. How is it possible to block something so big? You guys tell me. How far away? The distance, exactly. The answer is rather obvious. That the more distant you are from something, the smaller it appears. The more closer you are, the bigger it is and the more harder it is for you to cover it up. The problem with these eight people who don't believe in God is that they're so far away from Him, they're so distant, they don't look around themselves to see Hashem in their lives. 
and because they're so distant from Him, as great and as obvious and as absolute as it is that there is a God in this world, it's so easy for them to block Him. As obvious, you can see Hashem everywhere. What does it take to see Hashem? Every single second of your life is Hashem is micromanaging it, Hashem is orchestrating it all, He's supervising it all, but some people are ignoring Him. Everything is a coincidence in their lives. My marriage is a coincidence, and the job that I got is a coincidence, and the parking spot is a coincidence. And yeah, if that's the attitude you have, you keep distancing yourself from God, as great, as obvious as it is that there is a God in this world, because you have distanced yourself so far away from Him, it's so hard for you to see Him. It's so easy for you to say there is no God in this world. But the more you make a relationship with Him, the more you pay attention to what Hashem does for you, the more you realize how Hashem is supporting, how much Hashem loves you, Hashem is giving to you, and Hashem gives, constantly gives to you, the more you'll realize the Hashkacha Prati, the divine intervention in your life, the more you make the relationship, and when you stand so close to Hashem, it's so hard to avoid Him. You could try as hard as you can to block Him, but the light is going to penetrate right through your fingers, and you know it's all that back there, the God in this world. So going back to your uh, parking spot example, I've heard a, a very interesting mashal about, uh, you know, you're somebody's driving, and they've been looking for parking for hours, and they're like, you know, God, I will go to shul if you give me a parking spot. If you give me a parking spot, if you make a miracle and I get a parking spot, and as they're saying it, as the words are coming out of their mouth, parking spot opens up, they park, they're like, never mind, God, I got the parking spot, no need, thank you, I don't need your help anymore. And it's like God was in their life giving them the parking spot right then and there. And either way, somehow, some way, they still don't see it. They choose not to see it. Because life in their eyes may, you know, Coming from a position where never atheism, but you know, before becoming religion, uh, be, before becoming observant, definitely I had a little bit of that. Um, it's easier to think that you did something yourself, as you could probably say, like maybe before you became more observant, when you are now giving credit to Hashem for everything. It's just much easier if you wanted to to just take credit yourself. It's so much simpler to do so. And once you're actually, in my opinion now, it's much easier for me to do the opposite. But like when you're trying to have control, right? And when you're trying to control the situation, I think that's the real reason why people have such a, a difficulty accepting Hashem because they want to be in control. 100% I agree. And I think there's such a beauty in saying, I'm not in control. I don't have to worry. You know, when I'm the one driving a car or something like that, all of, right, compared to taking an Uber or something like that, I have the stress on me. I have to be the one focused on everything. When I'm getting, came here in an Uber, when I leave in an Uber or whatever, I'm doing whatever else I want. I'm focusing on myself. I don't have to like have hyper focus on everything. Everything around me is taken care of. I don't have to be focused on anything but my connection with God, my connection with my family, the people around me doing my, my kishtatlut, my emuna, you know, developing that. And I think that that's where the beauty comes in. I got nothing else to say because like you guys are doing my job for me. This is like really easy. I just got to sit here and enjoy the show, you know? It's just like everything just keeps getting easier and easier for me. Like the more imunah you put into Hashem, the easier life gets, the less control you have. You just, you know, you enjoy. In the world, in the end, you know, you go chase everything you want in the end of the day, Hashem is going to tell you, like, I'm just waiting for you to realize who's in control and then Hashem will step aside and I'll take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> Sometimes waits for us to, to realize ain't open but there's no one but Hashem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not coherent to me at least all in my power. And at the end of the day I realize that 
I could do what I could do, but put in Hashem's Hashem says, Oh, you trust me? Oh, in that case, I'll take care of this for you. So a lot of times, you know, you, know, you have no doubt in your mind there's a God in this world. Hashem says, I can't hide from you anymore. So so I'm gonna have to so I'm so obvious to you, so I'm gonna hide from you, I'm gonna perform for you open blatant miracles, things that you never thought were imaginable all of a sudden become magical because Hashem will not. That's the power of the I feel like I, I've definitely seen some of that after I became more and more observant. I also see it in my own life personally. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, I have two Bachelors over here and one from fourth, right? Yeah. So, yeah, usually we try it. <laughs> it's going to be two against one right now, you know? Yeah. You guys try to. Uh... I think, though, to be honest, everybody in their own way is about Shuva. That's true. Everyone in the end of the day is about Shuva. And they're all, you know, they all connect to Hashem differently and they get inspired differently and we grow. Everyone has a distance from Hashem, and some are more, some are closer, but at the end of the day, we're all, all returning And I Hashem. think in the same way, everybody is from, from birth in their own way. I think that everybody's neshama, at one point or another, was connected to Hashem. Yeah. And I think that we, part of the reason we started this podcast was to almost blend the lines between the Balchuva and the from, from birth, to have a better understanding and really yachad together right. of that. And I think that we're really starting to understand um, each other on the podcast more, and Really blend those lines a little bit between you know the friends uh, and the uh, birth side or <laughs> <laughs> sorry for speaking for you. <laughs> uh, I'll confirm with Yehuda as well, but yeah, no, that's true. But I just it, have it one. Was a permission to speak for both yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just have one really really controversial question. Who who would you say is the most influential Rebbe of of your uh, that influenced you more? to become more religious? Who would I say had the greatest impact on me? Yeah. Um, good question. It's, just, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, every Rebbe I had or, you know, all time definitely played a role in my life. Uh, I had one Rebbe that I personally connected with a lot. His name is Rebbe Gruber from Derechaim. I was in Derechaim for a number of years and Met Rebbe there, you know, Rebbe Haskell Gruber. He's such a warm person and he has so much love. And, like, I guess, you know, he had definitely a role to play. But I, I met him really when I was really from. So it's so hard to sell because there's so many stages of my becoming from. So I met different people that kind of brought me to the next level. Or at least I, you know, they give you, I know you take and you make something out of it. So the greatest rabbi I ever had probably would be my sister. Wow. It sounds a little bit controversial, like you said. But <laughs> <laughs> Biggest rabbit said. Yeah, rabbit said. He's not Orthodox here, but, like, you know, she definitely inspired me, pushed me, and I kind of needed that someone who's going to be like, you know, you know, to give me that. Hazak. Hazak, yeah. yeah. She, like, really sent me. So my my sister, I really, I, I love her, and, you know, she really guided me well. I'm glad I had a sister like that who put me on the right tracks and, like, you know, opened my eyes to to this world. Torah and Mitzvot, and you know, it's Shabbat, I started off with her, she started introducing me to it, Kashrut, and all these things, and like, I'm just absolutely grateful there. So, a big shout out to my sister. She doesn't usually watch me on Torah time, but uh, we'll forward her this one. Forward to her. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Awesome, thank you so much for having us, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Rabbi, it was great having you on. We, we look forward. Bizrat Hashem, we'll have you on again sometime. We'll do, uh, you know, maybe we can do in the future a panel with more rabbis and, you know, cool, yeah. yeah, some kind of interesting uh, different takes. But we loved having you on and uh, thank you again. <laughs>